Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Colonel Jack Thomas Tamarchio. Tamarchio served in the Army as a JAG officer in Grenada in the early 80s and also deployed to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait during the Gulf War. My name is uh, Jack Thomas Tamarchio. I retired from the United States Army and the Army Reserve in 2010 with the rank of uh, Colonel 06. I had a fairly, I guess, a little different kind of career. I started out through ROTC, commissioned as an officer, went on educational delay. Uh, to law school and became a JAG officer with the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I served from 1981 till 1985. And then uh, I went into the Pennsylvania Army National Guard for several years, then transferred over to the United States Army Reserve. Um, I also served uh, as a civil affairs officer and also uh, was in armor. Uh, so I've had uh, three MOSs. I didn't want to go in the Army, actually. I want to go in the Navy. And uh, I had a nomination to the U.S. Naval Academy and um, went down for my physical, and I discovered to my uh, regret that I couldn't read the eye chart. I went in there and looked at the eye chart, and the guy said, what do you see? And I saw a bunch. I I knew they were all a bunch of E's. I said, E. And he goes, well, they're all E's. I said, what what, what are they doing? I said, "Uh, E right, E left, E up, E down. I couldn't see him. And uh, he stopped me, and he said, okay, you're done. And he stamped my packet NPQ, which means not physically qualified. And uh, he said, you go down that way. I said, well, those guys are going that way. He goes, yeah, but you're going down that way. And down that way was the ash can pretty much. So um, that was the end of my, my Navy career. I wanted to be a pilot and I couldn't see. So uh, I had an Army ROTC scholarship already uh, that I was looking at. And uh, I thought the Army was a better option at that time. It was my only option, really. And uh, I did talk to the Marines briefly. They uh, they approached me about uh, the platoon leaders class course when I was a senior in high school. And uh, I met these two guys at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard Officers Club. And they were they were pretty stiff guys. One was a captain, one was a lieutenant. Really bad haircuts. 
And this was in the 70s. And, uh, you know, people had kind of longer hair than including myself. And I remember these guys were uh, they had the, the personality of of um, paper mache. They were just really boring guys and uh, real stiff. And at one point I, they said, what questions do you have of us now, candidate? I said, well, if I join the Marines, do I have to have haircuts like you guys. They didn't seem to like that answer, that question too much. So it wasn't a, a marriage made in heaven between the Marines and I. So that was the end of that. So I went in the Army. Training pipeline, I mean, for me, it was, wasn't too bad. It was pretty, pretty nice. I, I wanted to go to jump school when I was in, high, when I was in college in ROTC. And uh, I applied to jump school and I was rejected because they had some, some Army rule that said you couldn't go to a TDY school, like a jump school, which is a TDY school. Uh, until you went through your officer basic course. And since I had a three-year educational delay, I couldn't go to my officer basic course until I graduated law school and took the bar exam. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that then. I want to do this now because I'm 22 years old. I'm all fired up. I'm a brand new lieutenant. So I met this guy who was a who was a, a Navy midshipman Marine option at Penn State where I went to college. And he had these pretty cool Navy jump wings on. He's like gold looking things. And I said, where'd you get those jump wings? And he said, I got up at the Navy Marine Corps Jump School. I said, I know there's a Navy Marine Corps Jump School. And he goes, yeah, there is. I said, where is it? He goes, Lakehurst Naval Air Station, New Jersey. I said, can I go there? And he said, I don't know. Here, I'll give you the number. And he gave me the number. I called up the place and I got some some uh, a warrant officer on the line. And he said, yeah, we'll take you as long as you, you, you sign a waiver that if you get hurt, it's on you, not us. I said, I'll sign that waiver. And uh, so I, I got orders from the Marines uh, and the Navy accepting me and then I was able to talk my uh, people over in the Army into allowing me because I said, uh, it's not a TDY Army school. It's a TDY Navy school. And, and so the regulation doesn't apply. They bought that. So they let me go. And the jump school was three weeks. It was, it, was, uh, it was really for 10 jumps, not five, like the Army does. We were supposed to do 10 jumps. We only did five because we had weather problems. Um, but we... Uh, we jumped these old C-17 aircraft, something out of World War II, my first jump. And uh, the, the, the training wasn't bad. It was, it was, we did a lot of running. We had a real small class, like 35 guys, 15 of which were Navy SEALs who were going through, had just finished BUDS. And then there were a couple midshipmen from the Naval Academy, a couple, two Marine Corps majors, a couple midshipmen from Iowa State, and uh, me. It was the only Army guy. I think it was the only Army guy I ever went to this school, ever. And uh, in addition to jumping, they also taught us how to how to uh, rig parachutes, and we had to jump our own parachute. So you paid a lot of attention when they were teaching you how to rig a parachute and how to pack it, because you're going to jump it, and you're hoping that you know you're obviously doing the right thing. But the first jump, I, I we went up, and we're in this old aircraft, and I'm like the number six guy on the stick, getting ready to jump out of the aircraft. And as I'm coming to the door, the jump master throws his body against mine, pushes me back and yells at me, says, no jump, no jump. I thought something I did wrong, but I didn't. What I didn't notice is that the anchor line cable, where your static line hooks to as you go out the door, the anchor line cable, because this aircraft was so old, actually came out of the wall and it just, a bolt just broke. And uh, so my first jump was an abort. And had I jumped, I probably would have, I wouldn't have, my chute would not have deployed. I'd have to have deployed my reserve if I was fast enough or not, I would have crashed and burned and died. So uh, the second jump was about an hour later, and uh, the anchor line cable didn't break. So I did uh, two jumps that day. I did three jumps the next day, and then they had a weather problem. So I got my wings in like two or three days. So it was, wasn't too bad. But uh, 
you know, the, the training beyond that, after that, um, after jump school, I was in law school for three years, didn't even wear a uniform. And then uh, I reported to the 82nd Airborne Division after I went to the JAG officer basic course, which was like a gentleman's course. Frankly, it was pretty nice. It was started out of Fort Lee, Virginia for two weeks. And we had a lot of people that were direct commissioned lawyers. They didn't know anything about the military. So they taught them how to wear a uniform, who to salute, who not to salute, um, took them out to the field, took them to the range. They pretty much exempted most of us from doing doing that. And then uh, uh, they sent us up to Charlottesville, Virginia, at the JAG school, right in the University of Virginia grounds. And we were there for like 10 weeks. So it was really just going to class, learning how to be a military lawyer, piece of cake. After that, uh, I reported to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which was uh, a bit of a culture shock because it was pretty much high speed, low drag. And uh, they kind of threw you right into it. Airborne operations, you're, in the, you're, drop, you're jumping at least once or twice a month in, in some cases. And then uh, PT every morning uh, at seven o'clock, uh, running four miles a day. And uh, that was good. I really enjoyed it. Good, good training. And uh, they wanted their, their JAG officers to be integrated as much as possible with the trigger pullers. So we, we went out in the field a lot with the infantry and the artillery units. And that was also good training. And you really appreciated what these guys did every day because it wasn't real fun. I mean, you're out in the cold and wet. And uh, usually I'm in an office as a lawyer, uh, as a JAG officer, you know, nice and warm. But once in a while you're going out and you're, you're getting appreciate, you appreciate what these younger guys are doing, infantry guys and artillery guys and signal corps guys and air defense guys. Um, their life was not easy. So I enjoyed the training. The 82nd Air landed and I air landed uh, with the 82nd in Grenada. I was attached to the 2nd Battalion, uh, 505th Airborne Infantry as an infantry line unit. And I was one of the two lawyers that went in with that, with that, uh, that infantry unit. Those days, this was the beginning of what became operational law. The Army didn't really have operational lawyers, uh, so we were kind of the first. And our job was a couple different things. Obviously, you're doing military justice issues if there's problems with guys getting Article 15s or committing crimes or looting or raping people. You're doing all the legal work uh, to get that guy back to the States and uh, you know get him into the military justice system. Um, but... At that time, we were also doing um, advising the commanders on the law of war, rules of engagement, things like that. Um, we also got involved in uh, situations where we were investigating uh, some potential war crimes. There had been a, a helicopter, a U.S. helicopter that had been brought down by enemy fire. I think there were two pilots in that aircraft, and uh, allegedly they were they were taken prisoners by by prisoners by Grenadians, Grenadian troops, and they were executed. Um, so we investigated that. Um, we also investigated some issues um, and advised issues regarding um, third country nationals that were in in country. Um, Grenada was allied at that time. They had a communist government that didn't have it for very long, but they had this communist government that invited the Cubans in. And they had uh, they had representatives of all kind of bad guy countries there, North Koreans, North Vietnamese, um, Russians, uh, Eastern Bloc, uh, Warsaw Pact military advisors. They even had some guys from the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. So uh, we kind of, our guys kind of grabbed a lot of these, these cats and dogs. And uh, the question was, what do we do with these guys now that we have them? Uh, are, they, are they EPWs or POWs? Uh, what do we do with them? So we gave them the advice that uh, we said, well, you know, this is kind of sticky. So we think the, the safe thing to do is treat them as diplomats and get them the heck off the island as fast as possible. 
So that's what we did. We, we treated them as diplomats, got them back to the States, gave them a one-way ticket home to their home countries. And that was it. Again, in those days, lawyers weren't, we were on the ground. We, we were only two, there were only two of us at the time. And uh, we were going down there in shifts. Guys would go down for like a week or two and then come back. So, you know, the, the law of war stuff had not really matured to the point that commanders were, were asking their JAGs and inviting them into the talk the Tactical Operations Center, and, and asking their JAGs to look over the op plans and uh, warning orders and things like that. It just wasn't there yet. And that, in some cases, some of these commanders uh, were not, they didn't like lawyers. Uh, they looked at us as a bunch of obstreperous, difficult guys who were going to you know mess up their, their military operation. That, of course, has changed. I mean, you talk to commanders today, they won't go anywhere without their lawyers. Um, they understand that their career in some cases could could rise or fall on the wrong decision. So uh, in those days, again, it was very early in operational law. We were really at the point of the spear. And I can recall some commanders, you'd walk into the, into a unit and say, hey, sir, I'm your JAG. They throw you the hell out. They, they weren't even interested in talking to you. But those guys were dinosaurs. And eventually the smarter guys realized that, that their lawyers were, were, were force multipliers for their unit and force multipliers for their careers. So, uh, but it, it, when I was in Grenada, we were still in the infancy of that, of that relationship. So um, we had a pretty good battalion commander that, that I served under. Uh, he was a real good guy. He was smart. He understood what we could do. And uh, he let us get involved in things. But other commanders, uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with lawyers. Today, the Army JAG Corps has an embedded lawyer in, in, the, uh, in the special mission unit down there at Fort Bragg. In those days, we didn't do that. We didn't embed anybody. Um, we just had guys who were kind of attached as needed. And um, there were two, actually. One was kind of a trial counsel, uh, basically the commander's lawyer. The other guy was a, uh, was a defense counsel who would be utilized to help any of these uh, special operators who got in trouble. I was the defense counsel. And it was weird because uh, I didn't even know this existed. It was very much below the radar screen. And I didn't know about it until this one major who was a JAG officer at the 18th Airborne Corps, other side of post, who I didn't know very well called me up and asked me to go to lunch with him at the O Club, which I did. And he said, how would you like to take my job? I'm like, your job is a senior defense counsel for the Corps, uh, the 18th Airborne Corps. I'm only a captain. I'm not, I'm, I'm not qualified. I'm, I'm not, I don't have that rank. He goes, no, no, I have another job. And I said, what's that? And he goes, I'm the detailed defense counsel for uh, the special missions unit. Would you like to do that? And I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. What do I have to do? He said, basically your same thing you're doing now. You don't have to go anywhere. It's just, you're on call. And, uh, Occasionally, you would, you know, we would get these phone calls um, from from somebody that said, "You got to be prepared to, to go somewhere. Um, no uniform, bring light clothing, uh, tropical clothing, and uh, or we had to do a, a certain issue representing a, a military uh, member who was assigned over there who may have gotten himself in some kind of trouble. Um, what those things were, I probably can't get into, but um, uh, that's was, you know, it wasn't a full time job, but it was kind of cool for a captain to be brought into that. That's how I got my TS clearance way back in uh, 84, 83, 84. I really enjoyed that. I, I started out as a prosecutor um, and I, I, uh, I did that for about a year. And then they, th- what they did was they, you, they, they brought you over to defense after you had seasoned yourself. They, the idea was they didn't want you to screw up. Uh, if you want to screw something up, if you're going to screw up as a, as a, in court, they'd rather see you screw up in the government's time than on the time of the defendant. Because if you screwed up, then he went to jail. So uh, you had to get seasoned before they'd let you defend anybody. Um, I had some pretty cool cases. 
uh, when I was over there. Um, probably the biggest case I had was uh, a, a Grenada case. Uh, it was a guy who was a captain, army captain, who was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. And uh, I knew him. He was actually from the Philadelphia area. And I had actually done a will for him about a year before. And uh, we both deployed to Grenada. I didn't know he was down there. And he came to see me after we got back. And he and his uh, crew chief and some other guy on his, on his Black Hawk uh, apparently had decided to take some uh, souvenirs back from the island, which were AK-47s. When we were down there, we were told we were going to get each an AK-47 to take back. They were going to put a, they were going to put a rod down the barrel and, and demill it. So I had my own AK-47 that had my name on it. But then they said, no, you can't do it. You're not taking your AK-47s, so you don't get one. So I didn't get one. But these guys just thought they would get one anyway. So they took a bunch of them back. They hit them in the fuel cells of their empty fuel cells of their Blackhawk, which then went back on a C5 and uh, or C141, I forget. And when it went back, uh, they took their weapons each and they, you know, they had their souvenirs. And uh, one of the guys in the um, in his crew, one of his enlisted guys, decided he would sell his. And unfortunately for him, he sold it to an undercover agent from the ATF Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Um, once he got arrested, he started singing and uh, he implicated uh, the other the other enlisted guy and the captain who was the, the pilot. And the captain came to me for legal advice. So that case actually got to be a pretty big case because um, the, the Army had uh, advertised that if you turn your weapons in, you'll get amnesty. And so uh, this guy came to me and said, look, I want to take advantage of this amnesty. I'd like to turn my weapon in. So I, I ended up calling a bunch of people at ATF and, and 18th Airborne Corps and the 82nd Airborne Division, the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I said, well, I want a written guarantee in writing, obviously, that, that if my guy turns it in, He's not going to get prosecuted. Nobody would give me a written guarantee. They gave me oral guarantees, but not a written guarantee. And I said to my guy, look, an oral, an oral promise is not as good as a written promise, but it's better than nothing. And right now, you've got a whole lot of nothing to look at. And your, your compatriot on, the, on your aircraft has already identified you. It's a matter of time before the CID uh, comes to your house, executes a search warrant, searches your home and gets this AK-47 out of your closet, which is where it was. And you got you got caught red handed. So let's turn it in. I'll turn it in with you and uh, we'll uh, we'll get these oral guarantees. And I got oral guarantees all the way up the chain of command from the, the, the MP office at the 82nd to the staff judge advocate at the 82nd to the staff judge advocate at the 18th Airborne Corps to the ATF, and then finally to the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina. And I said, I think we got about seven promises here from people in, in the ability to give these promises. They have the authority. So let's do it. And we turned it in, and sure enough, the Army prosecuted them. Uh, I had already deployed again, this time to the Sinai, for a peacekeeping mission as a JAG. And uh, I got a then a Twix saying he was calling, asking for me to be his senior, for me his his uh, individual defense counsel, he put a request into the TJAG, the Judge Advocate General, and uh, they flew me back um, from the Sinai via Rome back to Fort Bragg, and uh, we, uh, he was court-martialed. I filed a, a big motion to dismiss the case based on these promises, and uh, I thought we had good law and good facts on our side, and uh, the, uh, the judge ruled against us and said, although the promises were made, and they were made with the authority to make them, and although my client did rely on them to his detriment, 
The promises did not bind the convening authority, the convening authority being the general, commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division, who decided to prosecute. And uh, therefore, we could go on with the, with the prosecution. Uh, that came as a big blow to my client and a big blow to me. I really thought we were going to win that case. We had no more defense, really. You know, he was court-martialed. He was convicted. He was dismissed from the service, reduced to E1 and sentenced to Leavenworth for, for a year. Um, the case made 2020, the TV show 2020. Um, I declined to go on and was supposed to get interviewed by Geraldo Rivera. But uh, we did file a motion uh, for immediate relief with the Secretary of the Army, and we got him out in six months. But, you know, he was pretty d- distraught that he had to go from captain to convict. And that was a tough case for me. Uh, it was a, that was probably my biggest case. But I had a lot of other ones. I had some uh, uh, attempted murder cases, some rape cases, some child abuse cases. Child abuse cases were really tough, especially defending these guys. In most cases, they were just, I don't know if they were bad guys or they were just stupid guys. I'd say they were more stupid guys than bad guys. But uh, I had a pretty active caseload in those four years. I think I did about 65 court martials or 67 or something like that uh, to verdict. So got a lot of good experience um, in the courtroom. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. I had some other cases. I had some other cases that never made it to trial, and those were rewarding. Um, I always seem to get the officer cases for some reason. I don't know why, but when officers screwed up, they did it with tremendous panache. Um, They didn't just do something stupid. They really did something stupid. And uh, so I had about two or three lieutenants that were uh, accused of various uh, sexual misconduct. And... um, one was uh, a homosexual assault on an enlisted soldier by a lieutenant. And um, it was a pretty bad case, factually. The guy admitted everything to the CID that took the statement. The statement was clean. He had been, he had read his rights. He waived his rights. Couldn't find any way to suppress it. He admitted everything, and it was extremely detailed. When I said to him, tell me about the statement, and he goes, well, I didn't do any of that. I said, but you wrote that. You, you, you signed that, didn't you? Yes. I don't recall giving that statement. I said, well, first of all, you said you didn't, you didn't do it. Then you said, you don't remember, you know, I, I got two stories here. I don't have a lot to work with. So that was a, a, a tough case, but uh, I was able to go to his battalion commander and uh, say to his battalion commander, I said, look, sir, you know, this lieutenant's a, it's been a good soldier, but obviously something happened here. Maybe he's gay. Maybe he's not. I don't know. 
we can, you know, we can, in those days, you know, this kind of stuff could put a guy sodomy in, in prison for 25 years. And so we can destroy this kid's life or we can maybe just let him get out of the army and give him an honorable discharge and maybe he'll go find himself. And the battalion commander was a pretty cool guy. And he looked at me and said, well, I'm from California. So I agree with you. Let's just, I'll, I'll approve a, a resi- resignation from the army for the good of the service. We'll give an honorable discharge. That was a, that was a rewarding case for me. Um, I think the kid was messed up. I think he was confused. Um, and I don't think he needed to go to jail for 25 years. Um, and another case where uh, that was really weird. It was a guy who was a Vietnam vet, had a lot of PTSD. And uh, he was also a captain. And he had uh, was going through his security clearance review with a, a DIS guy in Defense Investigative Services. And he asked him some questions about whether he was um, – Anything that he would like to tell him that was might be a little, you know, out of the ordinary that might be problematic. And he said, yeah, well, I'm a, I am wife swap with my NCOIC and I uh, take naked pictures of my prepubescent daughters. Well, that was a problem. And, uh, you know, th- th- they were going to bring court martial charges up on that guy. I was able to uh, to get him uh, uh, under psychiatric treatment. He had some severe mental issues. And uh, we got him out in a medical discharge. Um, he had uh, really bad PTSD. He was an enlisted guy in Vietnam. And apparently the enemy got through the wire at some fire base where he was. He was in hand-to-hand combat. And uh, he had a guy literally on top of him and uh, was getting ready to strangle him and basically or kill him somehow. And what he did was he grabbed the guy by the back of the head, brought him down, and, and bit his nose off. Um, so he said that was a pretty pretty scary thing to think about. So we got him, got him medical treatment. So, you know, I thought I did a pretty good job as a defense counsel. That was, that was a very rewarding case. I mean, bad stuff, really bad stuff, but you know, you joined your job. I guess the, the most rewarding moment downrange for me was in the Gulf, the first Gulf War, uh, deployed in the first Gulf War, um, to, uh, Saudi Arabia and then into Kuwait, um, after liberation, we were there for that, um, and I, I say rewarding because it's one of those incidents that happen that you always wonder, you know, how what you'll do in a time of an emergency. And that case involved uh, that that incident involved. A, I was in a convoy. It was a two vehicle convoy. It wasn't much of a convoy. We were doing a site visit. My job there was working as a uh, doing contract law. We were basically going to rebuild Kuwait after the, the Iraqis got kicked out. So we worked with the guys who were putting the oil wall fires fires out and stuff like that. So I was on my way to uh, check out some desalinization plants in Kuwait City. Kuwait City was served by two desalinization plants. So uh, I went out this with, uh, with with my boss in one Isuzu, which was the Japanese nation's um, contribution to the, to the Gulf War was Isuzus. So we all had Isuzus to drive. So we're in an Isuzu SUV. We're following another Isuzu SUV, two of us in Isuzus. And uh, we were doing the site visits to check out these desalinization plants to figure out the damage that the Iraqis had done. And anything they couldn't cart back to Baghdad, they destroyed. So these places were pretty beat up. So we had a lot of work to do. On the way back, the first vehicle, which was driven by a Green Beret major who was on orders to head to Delta Force, guy was a total stud. We're, I don't know, about 30 clicks south, southwest of Kuwait City. It's about five o'clock at night. He said, I know a shortcut back to Kuwait City. All right, whatever. So we're we following him and we we go off road and we're driving through down a dirt road. 
And I'm sitting there on the passenger's side reading the Stars and Stripes. And I happen to look up, but I notice we're going through perimeter, Iraqi defensive perimeters, which were filled with, with oil. They were going to light these oil trenches on fire to keep us out. They didn't ever did that. And I thought, hmm, we're going through the Iraqi defensive perimeter. That's interesting. But then I kind of went back to read my paper. And uh, all of a sudden, my vehicle stops. And the guy that's driving it was my boss. I was a major at the time. He was a lieutenant colonel. He stops the vehicle and he does a three-point turn and he says to himself out loud, I don't like the looks of this place. I don't even look up. I'm still reading the paper. So now we're driving down the road. We just came down. The vehicle ahead of us, which was about 100 yards ahead of us, they stop. He sees we're turning around. He does a three-point turn. He's behind us about 100 yards. And all of a sudden, kaboom, uh, the back uh, of our the glass in our SUV shatters out. I look at my my colleague. And I said, do we get a flat tire? And he goes, no. I said, was that us or was that Mike? And he goes, that was Mike. And I said, oh. And then we just kind of sat there. Then we turned around and we looked behind us 100 yards and his vehicle had hit an anti-tank mine and it was just blown to hell. As a result of that, it was apparent that there was a lot of smoke. We were worried that nobody was getting out. We weren't sure those guys were even alive. There were two of them were dead. And so we both said at the same time, let's go. We just jumped out and we ran through the minefield. Uh, we got to the vehicle. Um, it was smoking. We were worried that it was going to, the fuel line was going to ignite and they were going to be burned alive. So we, uh, we pulled out the, the doors and we, we lifted them out. Um, the other person was actually a female civilian engineer, Corps of Engineers. She was, had, her eardrums were blown out, but she was walking around. The driver, the major, he had um, his left leg was pretty bad. His right leg was pretty bad. His left leg was really bad. Um, bones were sticking out, and his left foot was doing a three sixty on a piece of skin. And his part of his scalp was gone, and part of his top of his ear was gone. So we lifted him out, and uh, my colleague and I carried him together uh, through the minefield back to our vehicle, laid him down. He was pulsing out a lot of blood, so I took my belt off and tourniqueted his left leg, put him in the back of our vehicle. Then we drove out of the minefield and uh, got out of there without a problem. Got him to the nearest allied unit, which was an Egyptian armor brigade. We got through their perimeter, got to their aid station. They said, well, the docks aren't here. They're all out the OPs doing rounds, seeing the troops, which is where they should have been. And they said, we'll, we'll help you. We'll put him in an Egyptian army ambulance, take him to a hospital, Kuwaiti hospital. So we put him in there. I got in with him. He was all bloody. I was all bloody. The driver was an Egyptian conscript, about 18 years old. He kept looking at us. You can see he was he was pretty nervous by the sight of blood. And he was very, very agitated. And I thought to myself, note to self, this guy should not be driving ambulances if he doesn't like to see the sight of blood. But I wasn't in the position to say anything. So off we go. I'm standing there in the back of the ambulance. It's like a bread box on wheels. And I'm doing my my first aid with this guy. And uh, he's coming in and out of consciousness, but he's okay, I think. And then his eyes kind of go back in his head, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to check out of the net. So I'm kind of hitting him, slapping him in the face, keeping him awake, talking to him. And then all of a sudden, the vehicle starts to oscillate from side to side. I turn around, and there's a slat you can open to talk to the driver. Of course, he doesn't speak any English. I open the slat, and I'm, I'm going to say, what the something is are you doing? And as I see that, I can see out the front window where the driver could see through the slat. 
and the whole world is going to the right. It's turning over. What I didn't know is my driver had lost control of the ambulance and he rolled it down a 40 foot ravine and flipped it four times. And the last thing I remember was turning around real quick and launching myself on my patient and wrapping my arms around this guy to stabilize him because I didn't want him to get tossed around like popcorn in a, in a Cracker Jack box. So uh, we landed with the on the roof of the ambulance. I didn't remember getting out. Apparently, I did. But I did get out, and then I apparently collapsed. I came to with my, my colleague, my boss, looking down at me, and he said, are you all right? I'm like, I don't know. I said, how's, how's the other guy? And he said, he's okay. And uh, anyway, they, they medevaced me to a hospital where I had uh, my right and left finger, arms were, fingers were all clawed up. My scalp was ripped open. My knee was ripped open. My neck hurt a lot. And uh, my left arm was, was really deeply lacerated right down to the bone. You could see the bone. So they sutured the left arm. They didn't suture the left arm. It was too deep. They let it heal from the inside, sutured the scalp, sutured the knee up. They said, you're bruised, your ulnar nerve. You'll be all right. You'll let your, your hands will come back. Put me in a Kuwaiti hospital for a week. Release me. My neck hurt like hell, but they said he just got cervical strain sprain. They released me, returned me to duty, and I was hobbling around for about a week. And finally, my adjutant, my S1, said, hey, there's an orthopedic surgeon, a neurosurgeon from Brook Army Medical Center coming through. I wanted to see you. I said, you don't need to see that guy. I'm okay. He goes, nah, see him anyway. All right. So this guy comes and sees me at my hooch. And he goes, but this gives me a lot of neurological exams. He said, I don't like the way this looks. He said, you're out of here. So what's wrong? He goes, I don't like the way this looks. You're out of here. He wouldn't tell me anything more. So they medevaced me to Lanchdale Army Hospital. I walked on the medevac bird carrying my A-bag and uh, sat in this seat for the flight. Got walked off, got on the bus, went into the hospital. They gave me more x-rays, more CAT scans with better equipment because the Kuwaitis had crummy equipment because they had to get stuff because the Iraqis stole the good equipment. And he came back to my hospital room and he said, Major, you've used up eight and a half of your nine lives. I said, why is that? He said, because you broke your neck and you broke your neck in three places, C5, C6, and C7. And uh he wrote a, drew a line in a piece of paper and showed me the x-ray. He said, that's your x-ray. That's the x-ray of a quadriplegic. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you're a walking quad right now. And the only reason you're not a quad is because you've got edema swelling in your neck from the trauma and your muscles are holding your shattered vertebrae in place. Um, but when that swelling goes down, you're going to be in maximum danger. And he's just telling me that they're putting a Philadelphia collar on and he drew a line in a piece of paper. He said, see that line? Disregard the length. The width of that line is a half a millimeter from left to right in that pencil line. That's how close you are to total cord compression. I said, what's total cord compression? He said, being a quad. So they medevaced me to Walter Reed and they did a eight hour operation on my neck, rebuilt my neck, put three levels of plates and screws in there and uh, threw me in a halo brace for three to three to four months. And I'm good to go. And that was a bad day at BlackRock. But the one thing I take about that was we did the right thing and we didn't hesitate. You know, you always wonder, well, I do the right thing. And I think we did the right thing. We saved this guy's life and he was medically retired. I saw him about two years later. We had lunch at Bragg. Uh, he came walking in. He's wearing, he's still, he's still in the army. For, he's getting ready to get out. 
And he comes in, he goes, he lost his left leg. And I, I looked at him, I said, I can't believe he got one leg. He goes, you walk fine. He goes, yeah, this prosthetic place is pretty good. It hurts to run, but I do a lot of biking now. And uh, he got out of the army, he retired to Minnesota. And every year I got a Christmas card from him and says, don't forget, I, I, I he's an infantry officer, actually a special forces officer. He said, don't think I'll ever forget what you guys did for me that day. Thank you very much. And he said, the worst part about that is that I had to get saved by two army lawyers. So that was probably the most memorable thing that I did in that deployment. That was Colonel Jack Thomas Tamarcio. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.